When we started looking at this series a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the book of James has often been seen as a list of do's and don'ts, uh, and I suggested that that sells it short. Uh, just below James's good practical advice lies a deep and passionate understanding of God and his ways. It is clear that James believed that what we do matters. Uh, we have seen that in the, the sermon that he preached on neighbourliness and in the sermon that Baz preached on not favouring one group of people over another. We saw it in the sermons that I gave on faith uh, without action being dead and on taming the tongue. And Alex showed last week the way that God's wisdom is to shape the way that we get on together. But lying below those deeds, those things we do, James shows that why we do things also matters. He focuses on uh, what today we might call motivation, our motives, and what can also be called our heart, our desires, our passions, our emotions that drive us. And he says that those desires can reflect the ways of the world or our understanding of God. The value we place on success in this world or the value we place on following and honouring God. James has been saying the things we do should reflect what is important to God. We are to love and value the poor because God does. James says that religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He says, faith without deeds is dead, but deeds on their own won't save. We need faith in the saving work of Jesus. We are to tame our tongues, not because that's a nice or sensible thing to do, but because we are children of the kingdom of God and we should want to speak like our king. And as Alex showed us last week, what we do needs to be shaped by God's wisdom and his spirit working within us. And it's this connection between our actions and our motives and God's plans for us that I want to look at today. As I heard the reading again today, I thought, you know, you could preach a sermon on each line. It is just so rich, uh, and I'm really going to skate over some of them, but I hope you will go back and just sort of think, what does this mean to me? How does this shape what I do each day, what I'm going to do tomorrow? Uh, am I going through the motions, or are my emotions reflecting the passions that God expects of me? Uh, when I first started looking at this passage, I, I thought it showed how God wants us to love. It shows the actions we should take, and, and it does do that. But more than that, it shows us how important our motives are to God. Are we doing things for ourselves, or are we doing things in the light of who God is? And the two aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, I do my job because I want to help people know and trust Jesus. That, that's my primary motivation. But I also really enjoy it. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our passage starts with a clear focus on the motives of the audience, initially first century Christians living in and around Israel, but words that 
transcend those 2,000 years and are, are real for us today. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Uh, we don't know what things James's first audience were quarrelling about. It may have had something to do with the money or access to uh, resources because James mentions that they had wrong motives for they wanted to spend what they had on pleasures. He doesn't go on and expand on that. And, and there are many pleasures in life that we will spend money on. But it's pleasures, our pleasures, at the expense of things that matter to God that he's talking about. Now, he also mentions that they wanted friendship with the world, and that really gives us a, a hint as to what he's getting at here. To be a friend of the world means playing by the rules of the world, which haven't really changed in the last 2,000 years. Money, power, and social position. Climbing over the person in front of you. Lying, if needs be. We sometimes hear the saying that money is the root of all evil, but that's not the full quote. What St Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, is this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not the money, power and social position that are so much the problem, but the motive that lies behind them and how we go about getting them, the damage we do along the way to others. I rejoice that Julie and Uncle Ray get sought out by the politicians and the media to share their wisdom. I feel sorry for the pastoral cost to them, uh, the personal cost to them of having a public profile because with that often comes envy and abuse. But I know them both well enough to know that their motives are for the good of other people. Public health and the well-being of indigenous people. And we have people in many walks of life who have worked hard to get where they are. They may think that they are not rolling in money, power and social position, but they have more than many. And I've never questioned the motives of these people, or, or any of you who work in a whole range uh, of jobs, uh, or have worked in them in your, in your days, because you seem to me to have the right motives, to be seeking the good of others and our society, or, or just to put food on the table, which is a worthy desire. I don't think James is talking about issues between the members of the early church, although there were no doubt disagreements. He was talking about how the early Christians engaged with the world around them, and he's not impressed. He calls friendship with the world living for the values of wealth, success and social position, hatred towards God. He could hardly use stronger language. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. I mean, it really is very strong, confronting language. 
Most commentators do not think early Christians were actually killing their competitors in business or their neighbouring land users, but perhaps taking what was not theirs, secretly moving boundary markers, bad-mouthing competitors, exploiting people who work for them, all the things we see in our world today. He's talking about the desires that drive us and the compromises we make along the way. Not what we do, but why we do it. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Sacrificing family to get ahead or making employees sacrifice their families. When James says, when you ask, you do not receive, he may be saying that they were praying to God, asking God to bless them in all their endeavours. And that is not in itself wrong. It's good to pray about our studies and our work and our needs. But James says they do not get because they don't because they ask with the wrong motive. They ask not for what they need to survive or to get by or to, to help them do good, but for things that will mark them out in their towns and villages as people of distinction. And James's judgment is clear. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. His reference to them as an adulterous people is not a reference to their sexual behaviour. Adultery had always been used as a metaphor for people who go chasing after other gods or things that were incompatible with good ways that God had set out for his people. And God clearly doesn't like it when we turn our backs on him. Yet James says, even when we reject God's grace, God has more grace to give. If you're feeling in any way uncomfortable about what you've been hearing today, you can just lift your heads up now and go, thank you God, because God gives us the grace to overcome things in the past that we may regret. We start afresh with God when we let him cleanse our heart by the work that Jesus has done for us. And he takes his audience back to scripture. God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Oh, it's a bit too far. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Here quoting uh, from Uh, the Proverbs. God hates any pride in our wealth, power and social standing, but he loves it when we turn to him and acknowledge our dependence on him. And humility and effectiveness are not mutually exclusive. People do not have to have a huge ego to get on in the world. And many people... Uh, Many of you know that I used to be a lawyer and there are certainly some huge egos in the law, but often the very best lawyers are also the most humble. In the the mid-80s, I worked for a very good lawyer called John Lahane. He had been voted the best lawyer in Australia in some prestigious publication, but he would never mention that. And he went on to become the first solicitor in Australia to be appointed a judge of the federal court. But John was also courteous to clients, other lawyers, 
secretaries and junior lawyers like me. He had a lovely family and really cherished his wife and children. One implication of what James is saying is that if you can't get something by being humble and honest, it really isn't worthwhile getting. Because pride and aggression and unrestrained ambition do not impress God or fit with the call to love. So James says, before you set your eyes on anything, submit yourselves to God. And he doesn't leave it there. He fills it out and he expands it and he explains it because he he really wants us to get this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, if you're tempted, resist. Call upon God's help to resist and the devil will flee. He can't deal with God. God is stronger than the devil. Just grab hold of God. When you're tempted to cheat, exaggerate. Blame someone else for something or lie or misrepresent. We should say, no, I don't want to live my life like that. I'm with God. I want to live his way. And when we get into the habit of resisting temptation, we'll be tempted less often. Until the thought that something that Satan has might attract us seems ridiculous. Verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now that can take the form of preparing for our prayer of confession, bringing to mind misspoken words, acts of pride, and apologising when we get things wrong. Verse 9, grieve and mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Our sin should really upset us, because when it does, we don't want to do it anymore. And then our hearts will be changed so that we don't do it anymore. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Walking in the knowledge that we are closer to being who God wants us to be lifts us higher than the envy of others or our own conceit can ever do. James isn't inviting us to a life of misery, but to put off the superficial signs of success or things acquired by compromising on God's expectations of us and and give thanks and honour to God. When we go through the relative darkness of repentance, changing our laughter to mourning and joy to gloom, God will bring us through to the other side, so by God's grace we're released from our failings and are free to love as God wants us to love. James then goes back to a, a subject he's already mentioned twice in this short letter, the damage we can do. Where am I up to? Let me see. Oh well, that's probably it. Uh, the damage that we can do uh, with the things that we say. Uh, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not speak ill of each other, and do not run people down to build yourself up. Speaking ill of others is not love. Uh, I may criticise the policies and behaviour 
of some politicians, but I also pray that God will help them do their, the job that they've promised to do and to humble and correct me when I am unfairly harsh or wrong. And, and again, he warns us to not judge the faith of each other. Uh, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. The law here probably means the, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is one lawgiver and judge. And again, James makes it clear he is not talking about warning people about bad behaviour, but James is talking about salvation issues. We, we can't judge people's um, faith, but we can certainly help people to, to not live in ways that are obviously contrary to God's will. God is the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbour? And it's good to know that our words, actions and motives matter to God, isn't it? What you're doing, what you're thinking at the moment, what you, what, what you do as you plan out your day, matters to God every day. There may also be a warning about hypocrisy here, judging people by a higher standard than we apply to ourselves rather than being humble. See how so much of what James is talking about here turns on our motives, on our hearts. Uh, it underlies everything we've heard today. And the final part of the reading is not divine advice against making plans, but the attitude in which we consider these issues. Now listen. You who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know? Uh, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is God's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All your boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Making plans, but if they don't work out, so be it. There is more to life and who we, are to, who we are to be. It's how we deal with the ups and downs of life that really matters, why we do things, rather than they're, whether they're a screaming success or failure. Some of the people who, who worry me the most are people who have great plans in which they invest everything of themselves. They may sacrifice their friends and family along the way, and they often change and become harder because they think they need to be hard to succeed. They push the people who work for them harder than they should. And I fear both for the damage they do along the way and also for what happens to them if they fail. But I also fear 
for who they will be if they succeed. Because they will think that they earned it. They deserve it. And the only way to succeed is by being tough, relentless and proud. There is no place for God there. So will we live knowing that every day, every breath is a gift from God? Uh, He decides how long we'll live. It is one thing to say that. It's another thing to live each day in conversation with God, seeking God's will for our lives, explaining to him why we're doing things, seeking his view on why we're doing things, the big things and the small things. For God created us not just to do things and to go places with our bodies, but to have certain attitudes and convictions and motives that reflect the truth, a true view of life and of God. God means for the truth about himself and about life to be known and felt and spoken as part of our reason for being. We weren't just created to do our work, whatever it is and wherever it is. We are made to do it with thoughts and attitudes and words that reflect a right view of life and God. You know, one of the the, the greatest uh, things of praise uh, or compliments that you can receive is that I see God in your actions. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear from people that you know or people you don't know? I see God in what you're doing. James sums up this passage with another reflection, that as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The root problem is arrogance or pride, and the expression of that arrogance, he says, is boasting. And all they said was, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That's all they said. That doesn't sound like arrogance to us in the world that we live in. But James calls it boasting and says that it's, roast, it's, it's rooted in arrogance because we're not doing it in consultation with God, trying to channel his passions and his desires for us. And so James invites us to consider our hearts, to consider our motives, Why study this course? Why buy that house? Why do this job? Why take that holiday? All good things, unless we're doing them for a wrong motive. To boast, to be seen, to be a success in this world. And as James says in the last line of this chapter, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we can be hard on ourselves and we can try and fool ourselves. But we know that we can't fool you. We delight that you see into our hearts and we delight that you can clean our hearts, make them as white as snow, by the saving work of your son Jesus. And we commit ourselves now to follow you, to live and do 
things that will be pleasing to you and honouring to you. Father God, please take us. Make our hearts as you would have them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's time for us to...